Dialogue on Teaching. I am Nancy Lynn Westfield, Director of the Wabash Center. Uh, in our engineers booth is Dr. Paul Myrie. It is my distinct pleasure to have as our guest today, Dr. Marcia Riggs. Marcia is the J. Erskine Love Professor of Christian Ethics at Columbia Theological Seminary in Georgia. Welcome, Marcia, to the conversation. Thanks, Lynn. So, so a little while ago, but it, I'm sure it seems a long time ago, um, Columbia <laughs> Seminary, just like most of the schools around the country, maybe even around the world, put out an edict that said something like, for the rest of the semester, we will be teaching online. What happened to you in that moment? How did you, how did you experience that moment? Well, I mean, actually, my initial response was somewhat relief. <laughs> uh, and I, I say that because um, I didn't want to have to get into a pattern of negotiating with the administration about the fact that I don't feel comfortable coming to campus, you know, in the midst of what's being said about the public health situation. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I was like, good, they made a really clear decision. <laughs> that is a fascinating... And sometimes that's not happened. <laughs> well, that's it. And people have either uh, been brought into classrooms as students or faculty when they were uncomfortable before uh, administrations made decisions or mm -hmm. when they longer into the COVID season, as we're calling it a little bit now. Um, okay not wanting to come into the classroom. So all you're saying that the, the administration by putting that edict forward gave you relief because you didn't have to be uncomfortable in your own classroom. Correct. And so I didn't is, have to debate with the administration. <laughs> and talk about you supposed to be in the classroom, but I don't want to be in the classroom because I think it's unsafe in the classroom. Yeah, I mean, I... <laughs> I guess it's been a while for me um, in terms of health issues personally that sometimes make the classroom space not as comfortable a space as it used to be in terms of mobility. Mm -hmm. uh, like we, we uh, became a technology-based kind of classroom, but we got these things called consoles that mm -hmm. don't move. So, you know, they're up at the front of the classroom, wherever, whoever designed the building decided that's where it should be. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it being there is not necessarily the most comfortable space for me to teach from. And even utilizing, you know, clickers and whatever and sitting down, um, you know, it just would sometimes make the space very uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. So I had already been working constantly on strategies around that. And um, so I guess for me, yeah, like I said, it was kind of a sigh of relief. I'm not going to have to negotiate the space in any particular way, but instead my questions turned more to um, how shall I continue constructing the community of learning that had already begun with my students. So my whole emphasis shifted just to who are these students that I've been teaching this semester? Uh, we've been constructing a particular community of learning, and how shall we continue that? So, so part of your concern is about the body in the classroom, your body and the mm -hmm. student's body in the classroom. 
And the fact right. that whoever designs the spaces seems like they don't take the fact that there are bodies in the spaces that have to be a part of the equation of setting up classroom spaces. Right. Or certainly the body must be a certain able body mm -hmm. in a particular way. Mm -hmm. And that, um, you know, that's just disappointing. <laughs> I mean, because even some students, for some students, that's not um, helpful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I remember um, as a teenager being uncomfortable in those little, um, the chairs where the desk is built into the chair. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I remember I, as, I, a, <laughs> as, as a faculty person, just like you described, being uncomfortable in, where you have to stand to use the tech in the classroom at the front of mm -hmm. the classroom. Um, so we, so we tend to overlook the body, even teaching. I mean, as you're saying what you're saying, I'm just now connecting to what is the comfort of my body, whether I'm able-bodied or disabled-bodied or unable-bodied or in that, you know, other mm -hmm. able-bodied in the classroom, that's rarely a part of the equation of teaching. Right, right. But, you know, since my whole pedagogy shifted more to what does it mean to have these embodied selves in this space called the classroom, uh, when I think about my students, became even more um, a part of how I thought about myself also. Mm -hmm. I'm an embodied self in this space, seeking to create a community of embodied selves. Mm -hmm. And we've all got these various different needs. Mm -hmm. And um, how, you know, that, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think that really is sort of the central point of connection to this announcement and what my task is, as I understand it, as a teacher, uh, was just simply, whew, I can now interface, to use uh, a term we're becoming, you know, familiar with because of all the technology stuff, but I, how do I interface with these students now? in a way that they can also feel comfortable. That's right. <laughs> but so, so much of the conversation, so now people are saying in the conversation, they feel uncomfortable because the bodies aren't together in the classroom. And right. And what you're saying is when the bodies are together in the classroom, we don't pay attention to the bodies in the, <laughs> in the classroom. Exactly. Which has been, you know, one of my big uh, conversations with the teaching faculty at Columbia, whenever we get together, I'm, I'm sort of like, you know, when are we really going to talk about what it means to be embodied selves in this space? Mm -hmm. And we have one person who's particularly, you know, doing disability theology and so forth. So it only becomes a conversation, a little bit of a conversation, around whatever people would consider disabled, you know, mm -hmm. in one particular way, which is physical, mostly. But mm -hmm. there are other mm -hmm. ways in which we are differently embodied, you know. Um, we're even cognitively differently embodied. So how do you design your teaching and the space you're teaching in, in a way that 
at least at some point, each body feels like, wow, this is really for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I want an overall feeling of that, but I certainly want everybody to at least have that experience in some fundamentally full way, <laughs> at least once in the course of a course. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and do you think the digital space um, adds a layer of complexity or relieves some of that complexity? Talk a, talk a little bit about now that we're online, does that mean we're at finally asking the questions that we wouldn't ask before? Or is the game so changed that we're just not ready for engaged answers with this fairly profound question? Yeah, I, hmm. I think we're not, we're still not yet asking the questions, really. I mean, at least in my, I'll just go with my locale, okay? Um, last faculty meeting, you know, the conversations back to, when can we get back in the classroom? And I'm sitting there going, is that the only question we want to ask? <laughs> and, you know, everybody goes silent on me. <laughs> So here I am, we, we use the Microsoft Teams function, okay? So folks, when folks don't want to talk directly, uh, verbally with audio, they go to the chat function. So the chat function begins to light up. <laughs> <laughs> Not in a fact, you know. no, no. <laughs> oh yeah, you know. So what do you really mean by that? <laughs> Face-to-face is the best kind of teaching. Yeah. Da, 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 da. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, okay. So I, when I finally got to get in the chat, I said, well, I have a series of questions I'd like to ask at the risk of being uh, not heard. Mm-hmm. So one of my other colleagues put the thumbs up. Go for it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I start asking. I recognize this faculty awesome. meeting, by the way. I recognize this. Go ahead. Hey, see? <laughs> so they haven't changed because we're not face to face. So, you know, I'm, I, you know, the very first fundamental question is why is it we think face to face teaching? is better than online teaching? Is it because that's what we're comfortable with? Is it because we have some, uh, you know, assumption that the traditional mode of delivery face-to-face is really uh, the right mode in quotation, you know, in quotation marks? I mean, what is it about that? I want to know what your assumptions are when you say it's better than, you know? Mm And I said, and then, you know, we're just, I said, even when we were face to face, we're in the midst of a paradigm shift in teaching and learning. And I said, and as long as you hold on to the assumption that it is a disruptive paradigm shift for technology to have entered the classroom, then I think you're missing the paradigm shift altogether. And and I think my final question or comment in this, you know, I just went on and kept typing in the little chat space <laughs> while Keep I going. had it. Keep going. It's the richness we want. Keep going. You know, and I just said, you know, I frankly am not convinced that the 
uh, synchronous, asynchronous debate either about online te- teaching is really the debate we need to have. And I stopped. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And no one replied. <laughs> so to any question. Right. So I don't know about your school. I think one of the things that I've found is that schools so rarely talk about pedagogy that we don't have a lexicon within our own communities to talk about pedagogy. We don't have understandings of how we define these terms, that we throw these terms around a lot. So in a, mm-hmm. in a moment when we have to make changes, either because of pandemic, or because of budget, or because of new student populations flooding into our classrooms, or because, 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 we are mm-hmm. wanting to have the conversation. We don't, as scholars, have the tools to have pedagogical conversations in these moments right. of need. Mm-hmm. I agree. And see, the thing is, uh, I guess it was a couple of years ago, we, we, meaning the executive committee of the faculty, suggested to the larger faculty, and I was on the executive committee at the time, that if we were going to have two faculty meetings a month, which seemed to be happening, uh, I said, well, it seems to me one faculty meeting should be the business meeting, and the second faculty meeting should only be about pedagogy. Mm-hmm. Because that's what we're called here to do is to teach, and we never really talk about it. It was agreed that that's what would happen. Mm-hmm. But as you can imagine, probably within the second or third pedagogical teaching faculty meeting, um, well, there's just this little bit of business we need to do. And I'm like, no. (laughs) It'll just have to wait to the next business meeting or you need to call a call meeting (laughs) to do the business. But here again, I mean, I became a lone voice saying, you know, just trying to stop this invasion into this space that was supposed to be the space where we really were willing to sort of become vulnerable and to, you know, lay out to each other, hey, here's what's going on in my classroom. Here's what I'd like to, you know, do or how I'd like to become as a teacher. And Folks were willing to let that go once again. So it's a real mixed bag. We still have the second faculty meeting, which is often taken up half of the time with business matters. <laughs> so one, one of the joys of the Wabash Center, and I say this as a participant and now as the director, is that the people who elect to come here are because not they know how to have pedagogical conversations. They're willing to take the risk to wade into those deeper waters, Um, which Mm -hmm. I find very different. What you just described, I find more typical in faculties, both as a a member of a faculty for a long time, but then as a person who's done a lot of consulting across the country, that faculties Mm -hmm. don't want to have conversations about pedagogy for all kinds of reasons, but that's like, my mm-hmm. analogy is it's like being in a donut factory and nobody talk about flour or sugar or baking, <laughs> you know? It's right. like people, we're a donut factory. We've got to talk nuts. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I, um, I started out, I think my really first full-fledged exposure to Wabash was, 
uh, mid-career teaching. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that was a really good uh, moment in time for me, uh, particularly because I had come to Columbia and um, thought I had a colleague in the same field. So, you know, most of our fields have at least two professors, you know, so I thought I had an ethics colleague. And within the, like, two months after I got there, the second ethics professor was let go. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And they weren't planning to replace the person, not anytime soon. So here I had been teaching uh, an incredible amount of classes. This was my second appointment. My first one had been at Drew. But still, I was early on in my teaching career when here are these expectations that I will carry the weight of all ethics teaching for the whole seminary across all programs. And it was just, you know, a need to have other people with whom I could talk about what the struggles were in making the transition from being uh, junior to Mm -hmm. (laughs) mid-career, you know, under those circumstances. (laughs) I I empathize with you because um, 20 years at Drew, I was the only person who taught Christian education for 20 years, and there was a required course Mm -hmm. in Christian education. So I taught intro to Christian education every semester for almost 20 years, unless I was on sabbatical. Um, and that changed mm-hmm. a little bit when we got a dean in Christian education who then began to share some of the teaching load. But that meant I spent, what, 17, 18 years to the intro class. Um, mm-hmm. So but I want to I get back to the notion of embodied teaching and the question mm-hmm. of why do we make the assumption that their face is better? I think, I think if we, in this moment of recognizing that the paradigm is shifting. And as you said, whether we recognize it as a force shift or welcome shift, because the paradigm has been shifting for a while. Um, uh-huh. that, similar to churches who are reporting, you know, I, res- I resisted going online for worship, but now there are more people than ever in my worship service on Sunday morning. Oh, I find uh-huh. that this new experience online is actually has some benefits to it. And mm-hmm. part of what I hear you calling for is a conversation without the assumptions and biases toward face-to-face addition as, of course, the ideal, the universal ideal or essentialist notion that this is the way it's supposed to be and everything else is ancillary to a new notion that's saying, what is the best way to do embodied teaching? And it doesn't have to be face-to-face. Right, exactly. And I think, you know, partially... For me, it's also living as a kind of constructivist in the world that, you know, we're all constructing meaning all the time. So uh, when I say, hey, look at myself as an embodied teacher and look at my learners as embodied selves, I'm constantly having to take on an attitude of what are we constructing together? You know, it's not like there's some... Um, established format that's going to work ever. (laughs) But, you know, for me, that was my attitude in the classroom. So going online, that attitude just simply became, you know, what new, what other methodologies will help us continue to be uh, teachers 
have a teaching and learning experience that is constructing community, mm-hmm. you know? So um, the course I had, I, luck, I admit, I was very fortunate this semester that I was teaching one class uh, and it was a small seminar. Um, and it was comprised though of mostly international men which was a shock to me when I, you know, it was my black church, church studies seminar. Uh, and the topic was ethical priorities for religious leaders in the 21st century, African-American perspectives. And when I got to the class and I was like, wow, I have <laughs> five men. Only one is a U.S. African-American student, the rest are all African male students, and one female mm-hmm. who was also African-American. So, uh, and I had taught maybe one of those students in another course at some point. Uh, so it really was a matter of asking myself questions about uh, who are these people, you know, what is it they're carrying in their bodies that, and in their, what, which constitutes both their emotional needs and their learning needs, you know? Mm-hmm. And when the pandemic came up, that question still had to stay at the front. What are going to be their emotional needs, you know, as well as how will I help them continue to construct the learning experience that we were having? Because it was getting good. <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know, it was like the first kind of uh, second announcement for the administration was, well, we will basically be doing asynchronous teaching online because number one, we only have Zoom contracts that, you know, do this, this, and this. And we only have so many of them. So, you know, everybody can't be going on Zoom. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So I was like, okay, so now we have our second mandate, asynchronous teaching online only. Uh, And I said, that's not going to work with this body of students, this body of learners that I've been with. They were primarily verbal processes of ideas. Mm-hmm. And I knew that because they were reading a book a week and coming in there and grappling and struggling aloud with each other and me to to understand these scholars. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was like, Mm-mm. there is no amount of asynchronous activities that are going to continue the community of learning that we were becoming. Mm-hmm. So I just said, I'll pay for a Zoom account. (laughs) We're going on Zoom. But before I announced that to the students, I actually asked them, you know, I sent out an email. Here are options for what we do now. Zoom or asynchronous online learning. And I explained to them what that would be like. And I said, I realize for many of you, Zoom will be a new thing. Mm -hmm. So be honest with me. Which do you want to do? And they wrote back and said, Zoom. (laughs) (laughs) 
because <laughs> Zoom, would, Zoom would create synchronicity, right? Zoom would create synchronous yeah. moments for conversation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they also wanted to continue exactly, because they could at this point, the exact same day of the week for three hours. Mm -hmm. Because it was a one hour, sem it was a three hour seminar, one day a week. And I said, okay, that's what we're gonna do. And when you, did the quality of the conversation change over Zoom? You went from face-to-face -face teaching with, the, uh, with these students to Zoom teaching. Mm -hmm. Did the mm -hmm. quality of the conversation shift over Zoom? No. And you want to know why? Yeah. It became more, it became equally or more energetic because now I was also thinking about, which was part of my pedagogy with them anyway, but thinking more uh, and more about what I call the entry points for each class session. So there was always a devotional entry point or two, and then there were the entry points for discussion about whatever the book and the topic was for the day. So um, as I thought more about entry, devotional entry points that were actually um, things that I would glean on Facebook and Twitter and other conversations that I'd have online um, in terms of video or music or poems, et cetera. And, about the pandemic moment and use those as the devotional points of entry. Mm -hmm. That that allowed them to first express kind of emotionally where they were in light of those entry points, which then allowed them to move to the second level of entry point, which is discussion of the topic and the reading for the week. And those entry points um, would include sometimes uh, music, video, poetry. They always included some video of whoever wrote the book doing something they were doing uh, online. Uh, it could be a lecture or it could be a snippet of uh, some folks, you know, like I can't remember the publisher now, but the one who has who actually has people make videos talking about their book. Mm -hmm. So those were great, you know. Um, so the energy stayed up because I, I, because I think I kept trying to create a space that they could be comfortable in, that, mm -hmm. you know, if doing the devotional points of entry, someone got particularly emotional, I didn't stop the emotion to say, okay, how much time is this taking? I simply let us all engage with that person where they were. Mm -hmm. Does I any of this make sense? That it all makes sense. So um, how did you learn who taught you or, or by what means did you teach yourself to ask yourself these pedagogical questions? <laughs> How did you, know, you become such a critically reflective pedagogue? Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, I think there are a number of factors. Um, one is, I think when I started teaching, um, I think I had somebody ask me the question, you know, how, 
what is good teaching or how, how and how do you know it or something like that. And I, I always started with my teachers who had been my teachers that I thought were quote unquote good teachers. Then it went to why did I think they were good teachers? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I kept pushing myself continuously over the course of my um, evolution, I guess I could say, as a teacher, to just keep asking myself questions about, you know, what is going on in the macro and micro context that will inevitably influence how I teach. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, I, so I did do the Wabash uh, colloquy when invited. I uh, began to read more about pedagogy. <laughs> Uh, I went to conferences like the teaching professor. Um, I just started opening myself more and more to the fact that I already have a PhD in a discipline. (laughs) I do not have education and training as a teacher. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So I've got to do that for myself. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And that's how it started. But it's because I'm a, as a learner, I'm curious anyway, you know, yeah. I always want to know more. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And, and to delve into your own curiosities about your own work and to, and, um, and to, and to move, take the tools that you have as a scholar to do the kind of work that facilitates your own agency, your own projects, your own learning your own curiosity is worth the price of admission as far as I'm concerned. So much of your approach to me is such a very liberative approach for your, yourself and your students. Yeah, I would, I mean, that is my hope. And sometimes I think the reason I was called to Columbia was to actually get in touch with all of the things that tend to act as barriers to being fully and authentically embodied me. Because when you come to a place and you're the only African-American, actually only professor of color on a faculty and you, and it's a place that is, you know, just steeped in a particular tradition and a particular way of doing things. And at the time I got there, had a cadre of about six white males who were the old guard about everything. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, I had to ask myself, you know, how will I be who I am? What are the core values for me at the center of me that have to come out in being a teacher here? And um, I tell you, the context pushed me and I pushed back. (laughs) And so, you know, eventually before they had even thought about doing evening classes, for example, I had run into some students who had come into our program who were um, older, working, and mostly of color, who were like, I can't make this class schedule. This thing is, you know, it's horrendous. And keep my job, you know, Mm -hmm. have a life. So I went to the dean and I said, I want to offer a course at night. And he at first was like, really? I said, yeah, really? So I offered a course when there were no courses being offered at night. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
you know, and so the joy of working with those students just kept, you know, gave me more energy to keep saying, how is it I authentically teach and to whom am I seeking to teach? Well, and, and back to constructing community, you didn't say I want to teach at night because you wanted to teach at night, not that you didn't, but you did it because you were listening to the community and saw the time slots as a community building gesture. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, as we moved on as an institution to uh, beginning to think about a model of uh, a parallel model of night and weekend teaching for, you know, these targeted populations who don't fit the norm. That was the conversation. Um, there was a lot of resistance and I knew that wouldn't last long because uh, I don't know about some pe other people's faculty, but if faculty even vote in something, but they don't really, they aren't really committed to it, they mm -hmm. will help make it not work. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so by that time I had a, an addition, a colleague in ethics, but uh, he was married, he had a child and he was like, I really can't see, you know, uh, teaching at night will just be a real, I said, look, I don't have a problem teaching at night. I don't have the same obligations. I'm fine. I, you know, it was for him like, but is it just if you just, and I don't, and I'm like, uh, okay, you know, if you want to use justice, justice requires different things. <laughs> I'm not sure it was an issue of justice, but that, that seems like a fine point to put on it. So, um, so yeah, I mean, and I really did shift, you know, after really uh, reading Ferreira and Bell Hooks and all those about, you know, letting go of the banking model of concept of teaching, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. my shift was to community building. Mm -hmm. And that just, from there, that meant I had to keep thinking about how does that happen? That's right. So, so uh, Frere and, and Hooks, you know, were um, colleagues in their time. Um, and mm -hmm. one of the frustrating parts about uh, both of their um, books, their teachings on pedagogy, is they tell you what to do, but they don't tell you how to do it. Um, and one of the things right. that I would tell my students is what they do tell you is what questions to levy against the situation. And the fact that your right. own curiosity, your own questions, your own context has to be levied against any situation, any theory, and not just take it at face value or um, no value and try to enforce right. it on a situation. Um, and that's what I exactly. hear that you've done, right? That you continue to ask the questions about your context, about your situation, and most importantly, about the actual five students in your classroom in this moment, not the students you, right. that you be there, you'd prefer to be there, that you'd want to be there, that might be there, the actual five folks looking back at you, you know, in, mm -hmm. these, in these classrooms and in these screens. So I think, to me, that is the height of um, teaching at its best. And I mean that sincerely, that that is, that is the teaching act, is to look back at students and say, let us do this together and not wish they were something other than they are some place other than we are, um, but, to, mm -hmm. but to be involved with each other and engage with each other 
in the moment in these spaces. So I applaud you and I thank you. Thanks. This, That's this, exactly where I am. <laughs> mm -hmm. I think um, I think Columbia is uh, should be glad to have you. I do know they are are glad to have you, um, and to have to have um, leadership on faculty raising the questions. I don't think the questions are going unheeded. I do um, um, I do hear your impatience about the questions, but I think it also will take people time to catch up with your questions, Marcy. They are needed questions in this moment. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting you say that because one of the things I was reflecting on is I was just looking back at where we are as a faculty from, you know, when I first got there and my own shifts relative to that. And, and the thing is, <laughs> they are now at the place of some of my initial questions. <laughs> so I shouldn't be impatient that they're not with me right now with these questions. <laughs> yep. Yep. It takes time. As as our grandmothers would say, you know, it just takes time. I thank you, I thank you for this conversation. It's a very rich conversation. Well, I thank you for inviting me. <laughs> and we're out. How was that, Paul? Mm -hmm.